Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church Podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Turn with me to Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. Did you know the government of heaven has classified documents? Unlike our, go- our governments, those documents remained sealed. Those, go- those government documents remain secure in the, in the lock boxes of heaven. But there's a day coming when those documents will begin to be unsealed. And those revelations will become known. And that's what we're going to read about here in this prophecy of the future in Revelation chapter 5. Now remember, John has been transported through time and space in the spirit through heaven's door. Today, heaven's door is closed, but at the close of the church age, the door of heaven will be open. And John is brought through that door into the very throne room of God. He arrives and is witness to what will happen on that day. Given a glimpse of the throne a glimpse of those around the throne, a glimpse of his future and ours. He sees the seven angels before the throne, the seven spirits who are seven angels, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders who are part of and representative of the glorified church who have already received their promised crowns, Stephanos Victor crowns, already received their robes, already received their promised thrones, These are believers who have been glorified and rewarded and now sit in their promised positions in the courtroom of heaven. And now we see this revelation shift from the throne and the one who is on it, who is not the son, as we'll see, but the father. We're going to see that shift to the lion and the lamb. And this morning, we're going to look at the lamb that was slain. Let's read this incredible revelation together. It's only 14 verses, and then we'll begin to walk back through it together. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book or a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. In other words, it is written, it is fully written uh, in, in, inside the scroll, but then also there are things written on the outside of the scroll that identify what is written within. And I saw a strong angel. So all angels are strong. 
But this is one who even among the angels, right? If you've ever been at the gym, you know, everybody's working out. And then somebody who is really big and strong comes walking in. This is a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book or the scroll and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And that spirit should be lowercase. This is not the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. This is the, the seven angels who are later referred to as the seven angels before the throne. The seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts or the four living creatures and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Don't ever think that God does not hear your prayers. Church, don't ever think your father does not hear every single prayer that you prayed and is not aware of every tear that you have cried. And there is a day coming if he has not answered your prayer yet. There is a day coming when that prayer will be answered. And they sung a new song, verse nine saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, let me just repeat what I said last week. I do not have time to go into a deep dive on uh, Bible translations, and, and let me just say, it is not a simple subject. It's not something that you can do in five minutes and just explain all the differences uh, between the manuscripts. Number one, translating the Old Testament is different than translating the New Testament. There, it's a different language. There are different source texts, different manuscript families that are used. The Masoretic text is the primary one that is used for the Hebrew uh, Bible that is translated. We have just fragments of the pre-Masoretic uh, scriptures, some of those found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then there's also the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which is very ancient, very old. It predates Jesus' birth and his death and resurrection. And so we have several sources that scholars look at when we're trying to translate the Hebrew, the Hebrew into English. When we get to the New Testament, we talk about the Greek manuscripts. That's a whole different can of worms. And there are different manuscript families. And I'm not going to take the time, and I don't have the time this morning, to go into all of the differences between what is called the received text 
and what is the majority text, and what is then also the critical text in the different manuscript families. I'm just going to summarize by saying that as someone who used to be someone who favored the critical text and someone who used to use other translations as it relates to the New Testament, that after studying it for myself, and interestingly enough, it was listening to proponents of the critical text to try to reinforce my position that I had, that I started to think, well, that's, wait, that's not true. That's not right. I don't agree with that. And it was actually their arguments for the critical text that actually drove me back to the received text. And this is one of those key passages. This was a passage that I preached, I think last week I said uh, 15 years ago, I think it was closer to 10 years ago that I preached on this particular passage. And I noticed the incredible difference, in fact, the contradiction between the critical text and what, what is called the received text. The received text is the basis for the King James and the New King James translations of the book of Revelation. And they clearly say, based on what I now believe are the most reliable manuscripts, that the 24 elders are singing about their redemption. It's not someone else. They're not angels singing about our redemption. In fact, nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture, I know we sing the Christmas songs about the angels singing. Nowhere in Scripture do you see angels singing. It is the saints who sing their praises to God. It is God who sings over us. He rejoices over us with singing. Like a parent rejoicing and singing lullabies to their baby. He is singing over us. We never see angels singing in Scripture, but these 24 elders have been given the crowns promised to the church, have been given the robes promised to the church, have been given the thrones promised to the church. These are members of the church. These are not angels. And so they are not singing about someone else's redemption. They are singing about their own redemption. That's all I have time this morning to comment on that. And notice that God has redeemed us again out of every tribe and tongue by his own blood and has made unto us, as God promised us, kings and priests, and we shall reign with Jesus over all the earth. Let the machines elect whoever they want. Because the reign of men will end with the reign of the God-man, and the men and women who will reign with him in the last and everlasting kingdom will be the sons and daughters of God. And we shall reign. The meek will inherit the earth, friend. And by God's grace, it will all be put together, and all the king's horses and all the king's men are going to watch the king put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it will all be made right in that day. And I beheld and I heard, verse 11, the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. All glory to Jesus. All glory to Jesus and to His Father. And it's by the Spirit that we are able to offer those praises to the Father and Son this morning. 
and verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard, I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. I want to show you a couple of things this morning from this passage as we, by the way, again, prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. We are going to remember the death and resurrection of our Jesus today, but especially the death of our Savior Jesus, his death for our sin. We're not going to leave out the resurrection because we're going to do it and proclaim it until he comes. And he's coming back because he is risen from the dead. But today we are honoring the Lord in obedience to the Lord by observing the Lord's table. And I want to show you some things about the lamb who was slain today. First of all, though, let's begin by looking at this seven sealed scroll, verses one through four, held in the hand of almighty God and sealed with seven seals, marking it as a sacred decree because it is in the hands of God, but also a royal decree from the throne, the very throne of God. Now, under Roman law, and the first century readers would have identified with this immediately, under Roman law, when a legal document dealt with the life and death of someone, it was to be sealed seven times. Now, obviously, God is not subject to the Roman laws. But this is highlighted for us. And one reason is that those first century readers would have immediately made that connection. This is a life and death verdict that is held in the hands of God the Father. And we also know, even though we are not yet told what is written on the outside of the scroll, let alone what is written on the inside of the scroll, we do know something important about what's inside. We know that this scroll concerns the world of man. How do we know that? Because it must be opened by a man. They're not just looking for any entity to open this. This scroll cannot be opened by anyone but a man. However, finding a man is easy. There are, at this point in time, in the future, there are probably millions, but certainly myriads of men and women in heaven with their Savior, and yet they are looking for one who is worthy. Worthy to open the scroll. Do you understand? Adam was not worthy to open the scroll. Moses, the lawgiver, who received the commandments on tablets of stone, was not worthy to open this scroll. He was worthy, made worthy by God to hold the commandments, but not worthy to open this scroll. Peter was not worthy to open the scroll. John the great apostle, the last man standing of all the apostles. Paul, not worthy. Uh, probably no greater example given to us in Scripture of a mere man living out the Christian life, and yet he is not worthy. None 
is found yet who is worthy, not in heaven, not on the earth, not under the earth. None are even worthy, John says, to even look on the outer inscription of the scroll, let alone break the seals and pronounce God's divine decrees, neither patriarch nor prophet, neither saint nor apostle. And so we see then the apostle's sorrow. This also gives us insight into what John knew was in this scroll. Even though John doesn't verbalize it, he illustrates it with his own tears. John is devastated that the scroll is not yet open. This reveals to us that the scroll is not just about final judgment, although we're going to see, Lord willing, over the weeks and months, that there are many, many judgments that are coming that are recorded and demanded by this scroll. But this scroll is not just about wrath. This scroll is about restoration. This scroll is about redemption. You see, John has, John has seen a lot in his life. He's seen the miracles of Jesus. He's walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. John, I believe, we shared why uh, when we started this study months ago now, I believe the Bible implies, can't be dogmatic, but implies that John the Apostle was the son of Salom, who was the sister of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, making John the half-cousin of Jesus. And if so, John was also then the half-cousin of John the Baptist. And John would have been named after John the Baptist, who up until that time, there, was no, there were no Johns in the family. We're told that when the vision is given to Zechariah. No one in your family is named John. Why do you want to name him John? He wrote down because he couldn't, couldn't speak. Name him John. John has seen, not with his own eyes, but he's lived through it, the execution of who I, a man I believe was his own cousin, John the Baptist, beheaded. He has seen and lived through. He was there. He was the only apostle there at the cross. While his mother, I believe, Salome, and certainly his uh, Jesus' mother, who became his then adopted mother, no, no wonder if she was his aunt, that Jesus would say, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. John, take care of my mama. Take care of, take care of your aunt as your own mother. John was there to see the cross, to see the execution of his Savior. John was there at the empty tomb. First man in, right? He and Peter, John was there. Pete, was it Peter or John who was first? Peter was first. That's right. He was, he was older. John was second man in. But he's witness to the resurrection. And yet then, as they anticipate Jesus setting up the kingdom, Jesus ascends away into heaven. And he's got to stay behind and do the work of the apostles. And he sees his own brother executed as the first of the apostles. Stephen, the first martyr. James, his brother, the first apostle who was executed. And, and one after one, all the other apostles face a martyr's death. And James, the brother of Jesus, who would also have been his cousin, also martyred. And Luke martyred. And, all, and Mark martyred. And all the other 
men who God used to deliver the Scriptures to us. And John is watching them. And John is feeling the grief of all of that loss. And John is here now in heaven with the anticipation of finally, it's all going to be brought to right. It's all going to be made right. And no one opens the scroll. The, the anticipation. Finally, I get to see things. And he weeps. Because the restoration is yet lingering. And yet one of the 24 elders, not one of the angels, a glorified man, I believe probably one who knew John. Maybe his brother, we don't know. Some have speculated maybe this is John himself speaking to John. I don't know. That's like a Bill and Ted's paradox kind of meeting himself in the future. I don't know. What, is that a bootstrap paradox? I'm not sure if that's a bootstrap paradox or not, but that would be quite a paradox. But one of the elders, I believe a man glorified who probably knew John, says, don't weep. Don't weep, John. Because the Lion of Judah is going to open the scroll. See, it had to be a man. It had to be a man. Listen to what John says here. Uh, the elder's assurance that comes to John. Weep not, verse 5. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. The word in Greek, Nikon, from which we get our English Nike, it means conqueror, victor. The root of David has become victorious. Death had to be conquered. Sin had to be conquered. The grave had to be conquered, and it had to be conquered by a man. And so God had to become a man to redeem men and to redeem women. Don't you ever let a preacher tell you that the virgin birth is a secondary issue or does not matter. Without the virgin birth, you have no sinless Savior. You have no one who can prevail over sin and death and the grave. You have no one who is worthy to open the scroll. But there is one born of a virgin Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh, so that he could live a real human life and die a real human death for your sin, for my sin, and rise victorious from the dead and prevail so that he has the right and is worthy as a Man, not just as God, but as a man. See, Adam was given authority, created in the image of God, and that image of God in Adam was broken. And so we're all photocopies of that broken image. As we come from Adam, we carry the broken image, the curse of sin. And so one who did not know Adam as father because he did not come from Joseph's loins, but by the Holy Spirit who conceived him in the womb of a virgin, he became man to redeem men. And he has prevailed. The angel announces, excuse me, the elder announces the lion's arrival. Emmanuel has prevailed. But then notice when John 
turns to look at the lion, he doesn't see a lion. And he doesn't even see Jesus in his reality. He doesn't even see Jesus in his glorified humanity as he saw him in chapter 1 when he was in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos in his vision. He sees now a prophetic vision. He sees now a, a dream vision. He doesn't see Jesus as he is, but he sees a vision of what represents who Jesus is. Jesus is not actually a lamb, okay? Jesus did not turn into a lamb. But in this prophetic vision, John sees him as a lamb. And notice how he is described to us in chapter 1. I beheld, lo, verse 6, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now, there's two things I want to show you just from that statement alone. Number one, we don't see this in English, but in the Greek, there are two words for lamb. One is this, the every old, day, every old word for an every old day lamb. Just a, any old lamb out in the field. But there's another word for lamb. Because, see, some of the shepherds, they would have a lamb that they would bring into the house. That they would care for as a pet. How many of you have dogs? I want to talk to the cat people for a moment. Don't you, you, you all hang on. But how, how many of you all have a dog? Maybe, you have a, maybe if you have a cat that acts like a dog, you can. That, you know, my sister used to have a cat, Oscar, that she, that she or uh, Oscar, he, but it was her cat. He thought he was a dog. I mean, he acted like a dog. He'd come up right and sit on your lap and just greatest dog. And then he was murdered by another cat. And then my, so I was starting to love cats. And then I just kind of went right back down after Oscar was killed. But anyways, you, you have that animal that, that loves you unconditionally and that follows you around and that is so precious to you. And if that's your cat, God bless you. Fine. Use a cat as your illustration. That's the word that's used here of the lamb, the family pet lamb. And why is it used? Because God is, is emphasizing to us how precious His Son is to Him. How precious His Son is to Him. That He would send Him as sacrifice. 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What manner of love? For into our experience how much God loves you. All the glory to God for His great love for us. And now here's the other word I want to emphasize. It's the word slain. And again, you don't see this in English, but the Greek word that John chooses is a word for a violent death. This lamb was violently killed. And you could see it in the vision, the violence that was inflicted on the lamb. And John is being shown Jesus in this picture, in this vision, in this dream state, to remind John and to remind us of what it cost Jesus to save us. He suffered one of the most excruciating, violent deaths ever invented by man. The crucifixion. Every breath was a battle. Death by asphyxiation, but also the pain of the blood loss, the pain of the piercing, the pain of the cross rubbing up and down your back, 
splintering your back, which had been shredded by whips. A crown of thorns pressed down into his skull, hanging there for you, for me, to pay the sin debt of all mankind. He is worthy to open the scroll. Notice also he is pictured with seven horns and seven eyes. I don't have time to to dive into this, but some of you were with us when we studied the book of Daniel, and this is a a callback to the vision that Daniel had of the kingdoms of the earth. In the the book of Daniel, chapter 7, again, we're not going to take the time to go there, but I encourage you to read that chapter. You're going to have a lot more insight into what is happening here, I believe, if you read Daniel chapter 7. But in Daniel 7, Daniel is shown the kingdoms of the earth, and they're pictured as animals and one of them is pictured in particular as a beast with ten horns and those horns are not literal horns those horns represent the rulers that are going to reign over the dragon's kingdom on earth and out of those horns a little horn will rise and he will take out he will not appear to be the ultimate antichrist at first He's not going to look like the leader of the ten kings at first. He's going to look like the least of them. But he will rise up when the ten kings are established, the ten horns, and he will take out three of them, and he will become the Antichrist and will rule over the world until Christ comes to put him in his eternal place. And he has pictured this beast as having the ten horns. This lamb is shown to have ten horns and ten eyes, and we're told that we're given the interpretation of the vision. The interpretation is that these are the seven spirits that are sent out into the earth. Now, these are, again, this is not the Holy Spirit. These are seven spirits that are represented as the eyes and the horns of the Lamb of God. And what we are being told is that the ultimate angels, the highest-ranking angels who are Before the very throne of God, Michael we know is an archangel. There are six others from given this passage. Gabriel, likely one of them. We we don't know for sure. Jewish tradition has has the names listed. We we don't have the names in Scripture, so I'm not going to be dogmatic. But what John is saying is that the most powerful angels in all of heaven have already yielded their authority and their power and their wisdom in service to the God-man. They serve a man, but he is the capital M, son of man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. All things, Ephesians tells us, have already been put under his feet, dominions and powers. The greatest, most powerful angels in all of existence have already bowed the knee and already yielded their authority and their wisdom to Christ. And so he is pictured, this lamb, as taking the scroll from his father. Now, let me look just very quickly at the elder's new song. Verses 8 through 10 again. They sang a new song with their harps, with their vials, the prayers of the saints, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and nation. The angels 
or excuse me, the, the elders, not the angels, the elders here are singing. They fall in worship. They actually prostrate themselves. They show their worship in how they prostrate themselves. Now, listen, you can, you can get down on your hands and knees. If your heart is not bowed, it means nothing. But I encourage you, you may not feel, you may not feel led to do it in church, but I, I would hope that there's some time in your life, in your walk with Christ, if you're truly a child of God, that you get on your knees before God, that you get on your face before God in prayer and in worship and prostrate yourself. You're going to do it in heaven. You might as well practice now. That we prostrate ourselves in heaven. They worship. They fall in worship. They make music for worship. Why do we sing so much? Because music, God created music for us to worship Him. And so we use it in worship. And they offer their prayers in worship. And they offer the prayers of the saints in worship that are here pictured as vials of sweet-smelling oils. Now, it's, it's interesting. Vials are later represented in chapter 15 as being full of judgment. And I believe that what God is hinting at here is that these are one particular kind of prayer. These are prayers for justice. These are prayers for God's justice when we have been treated unfairly, when we are ruled over by wicked men and women, and we are crying out for justice, and we say, where are those prayers going? God, are you not answering our prayers? No, no, no. God is collecting every one of those prayers for justice. And just like the widow who Jesus said is an example of why you should never stop praying and never give up, she goes to the judge time and time and time and time again, and the judge doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear men. But finally, he breaks down to get rid of this woman, and he finally gives her justice. And Jesus said, that's how you need to pray. The justice isn't always going to come in this time period. But there is wrath that is coming. There is wrath that is coming, and God will hear and does hear and will answer every prayer for justice that you pray. They sing a new song of worship about the opening of the seals because he alone is worthy. They sing a song we've already talked about, about their personal redemption. This is why they're praising. Listen, if you've been saved, the, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If God's redeemed you, why are you shy about it? If you really understand that your sins are paid for and you no longer need to fear death and, and hell is not your future, then why aren't you excited to praise Him and worship Him and glorify Him for that? Or do you really not believe it? Is it really just something that you are trying out? It's just, it's fashionable. Well, I got news for you. It's not going to be fashionable in our culture not even here in comfy Western Maryland for very much longer. Are you still going to worship? Are you still going to praise Him? If you know your sins are forgiven, you will. If you know you have eternal life and death is just, an, is just a blip and that you're not even really ever going to look at death, you're going to look right at the eyes of your Savior when death comes calling for you. It can have your body, but not even that's going to stay it's His for long. They sing about their redemption. And notice again, they sing about their elevated status. You don't need to have status here on this earth. You don't need to have stat. You don't need to worry about your title. You don't need to. I don't care if you call me pastor or not. 
You don't have to. Some of you feel comfortable calling me pastor. Some of you don't. I, you don't have to call me. You can call me whatever you want. Just don't curse me. I mean, you know, but call me whatever you want. I, your status here, your titles here, they don't matter. Your bank account doesn't matter. If you're a child of God, you're already a priest of God. If you're a child of God, you're already royalty. Who cares what the royal family's doing? They're not going to keep that wealth. They're not going to keep that land. Let them, let them enjoy their sin. The only enjoyment they're ever going to get. You are a child of God if you know Jesus as your Savior. And so they sing in praise to the Lamb here. Praise to the Lamb of God. This countless multitude, all the angels, all the living creatures, all of the elders, which apparently is more than just the 24 here because it's all the elders. So all the saints who have been brought to heaven and, and have, um, uh, have been given their uh, robes and their crowns and their thrones, we're all going to be there gathered together as one. And with the angels and the living creatures, we're all going to offer Praise. And now let me just walk you through this very quickly. The lamb that was slain is going to be praised because he is worthy to receive. Listen, the following acts of worship from every single one of his creation. See, Jesus isn't getting Jesus is not going to be getting more power when he goes to heaven. That's not what this this song is saying. That's not what this chant of praise is saying. It's not that, oh, Jesus, now he's getting more power. Now he's getting more riches. He already owns everything. He created it. He's infinite in power. The, the praise here is we're giving him our power. We're giving him our riches. We're giving him our wisdom. We're giving him our strength. We're giving him our honor. We're giving him our glory. We're giving him our blessing. And so their worship says, Jesus, you alone you alone are worthy of our authority, whatever status you have. The highest title I have is dad, right, and husband. Those are the two highest titles I have. I better be using those titles in service to Jesus Christ. I don't care how much your kids love you. I don't care how much your spouse loves you. You're going to stand, if you have a, if a spouse, if you have kids, you're gonna, you have grandkids, you're going to stand before God and you are going to give an account for how you use that authority in someone else's life, that position of influence, that position of love. You're going to give an account for how you use that for him. All authority to him. All power to him. Number two, all riches. How are you using your resources today in service to him? Say, it's my money. I earned it. Well, with what strength? Who do you think gave you the strength? Who do you think gave you the wisdom? Who do you think gave you the opportunity to have the job that you have to make the money that you make? It's his. Are you using your riches, your resources in service to him? Number three, wisdom, our insight, our understanding in service to him. Strength is our abilities. Whatever abilities you have have been given to you by God. Some of you can sing. Some of you can think. Some of you can build. Some of you can relate some of you can calm some of you can challenge and exhort some of you can teach whatever talent God has given you are you using it to serve him honor our reverence in service to him listen we're about to observe communion here in just 
a matter of minutes now. This is a serious time we're entering into. This is a serious time. We need to be reverential in our service to him. Number six, glory, our importance. Anything important about me needs to be given in service to him and our blessing. What does that mean? It means that we're deliberate when we serve him. You're not going to serve God by accident. You're going to have to make some choices. You're going to have to sacrifice some time if you want to serve God. You're going to have to sacrifice some of what you want, some of what you want to buy, some of what you want to get. You're going to have to make some sacrifices if you want to serve him. Is he not worthy of your blessings? Is he not worthy? Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. And that's what we see next year as we close this chapter. The father and the lamb are acknowledged together as the ultimate source of what we give back to them. You say, what about the Spirit? The Spirit is the one who is enabling us to receive those things. He's the one who is giving us those gifts. He's the one who's taking them from the Father and Son and applying them to our lives, and He's giving us the gifts that we have. We see that, for example, in spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's the one who delivers the gifts. He's the one who empowers the gifts. But every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no shadow of turning. And so the praise here as we close chapter 5 is saying that, yes, we give him our praise, but the reason that we give him our praise is because verse 13, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne. He's the source of all that anyways. He's the source of all of our blessings. He's the source of any honor that we receive. He's, ex he's the source of any glory we, we receive. And by the way, the word power here is, is different it's a different Greek word than the one he just used when he talks about us giving our power. The word power here, the power that God has here is the power of dominion. It's the power of rulership. It's the power of authority because he is the ultimate authority. Any authority that we have is simply delegated from him. These are the mighty deeds. The word is kratos in Greek. Kratos. Not dynamos, which means the ability to do, but kratos, the power of dominion. And so in conclusion, the four beasts said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Anybody here want to say amen to the praises that we will say with him, to him, for him forever on that day when we're gathered there with him? And so the question I have today is, will I live in, in agreement with this worship today? Will I humble myself now in worship before the eternal God? Friend, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation in preparation for communion. Communion is a very sacred thing. Don't take communion if, you, if you've got unrepentant sin in your life. Not, I'm, you don't have to be sinless. None of us are sinless. You can't be sinless. But if you've got an issue in your life that you have not been yielding to the Holy Spirit, don't, this is not time for you to test him. For this cause, Paul says, many among you are sick, and some of you are even, have even died because of this. But we want to give you time right now to prepare your heart for what happens next. Would you stand with me as we prepare to sing together? God, we God, are just in awe of your grace in showing us this glimpse of the future and God I know this is my future I know this is my wife's future 
God, I know it's the future for most of us, God, but if there's somebody here today, this isn't their future yet because they have never trusted in you for their forgiveness of sins. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, His death, His resurrection. Father, I pray before they leave this room that they would decide right now to admit they're a sinner who needs forgiveness, who needs a Savior, that Jesus is the one and only Savior, and that they place their faith and trust by calling on Jesus as their Savior, the Lord of, of heaven and earth, to call upon Him to forgive them of their sins and to receive that forgiveness in eternal life. Let's sing this hymn together, friends. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering. You have a need, the altar is open. If you need prayer, the altar is open. I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last.
Father, again, we give you praise and honor and glory. All that we have, all the crowns that we earn, God, are earned only by your grace, earned only by your strength. The rewards given to us, God, because you gave us the ability by your spirit. You sanctified us. You are the one changing our heart, Father. You're the one making us more and more into the image of your Son. And so, Father, even the rewards that we are given for our works are only because we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for those good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Father, as we prepare to observe the Lord's table, God, we again ask that your spirit would show us, God, the love that you have for us as we remember what your son did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.